Welcome surgeons. Residency didn't teach us everything we needed to learn to be a successful surgeon. While we spent our time caring for patients and learning how to operate, we didn't learn how to advocate for ourselves or navigate our career. I'm your host, Dr. Amy Vertries. I'm a general surgeon, certified coach, and founder of the Boss Business of Surgery series. This is where you'll learn those lessons not taught in residency. You guys are all joining us on the difficult partner, surgeon coaching. This is really an important concept. Uh, the difficult partner, surgeon coaching. Um, my name is uh, Amy Vertries. I'm really glad that you guys are here. Uh, asking surgeons to give up time is, is a real big deal. Um, and considering the amount of people that register for this event, uh, it sounds like there's more than enough difficult partners to go around. Um, so after this talk, I'm going to have a brief... I would first have a brief introduction about what boss is and who I am. And then we're going to go over some of the aspects of having to deal with a difficult partner. Um, this is obviously a huge topic, but um, over the course of this hour uh, that we're going to spend together, I hope to cover some a high yield approach and how to start um, changing your environment. Because here's the bottom line. You worked hard for your career. You didn't get this far to not enjoy it. And having a difficult partner is optional. So who am I? I'm Amy Vertries, I'm a wife, mother, daughter, sister, general surgeon. Um, I'm a general surgeon in private practice in Tennessee. I'm an army veteran. I deployed to Afghanistan twice and Iraq once. Um, I'm a certified uh, coach um, and I coach surgeons. The reason that I became a coach um, and I think that's kind of relevant to, to talk about is uh, I was in the military for seven, 17 years. And after I got out of the military, um, you know, kind of feeling powerless in some situations, um, I joined an employed general surgery practice. And that was fine. I mean, there were a lot of things that I wanted to change. Um, but despite me trying lots of different um, options, I discovered coaching at that time. I tried some coaching principles and I just felt powerless in making some of those changes. And so despite everything I tried, um, it didn't work. And my job itself was fine, I, but I could see myself, you know, 15 years from there still complaining of the same things. And I kind of looked around one day and I said, you know, I, this is a good job, but I want a great job. And that's the time when coaching saved me the most. It helped me get out of my mental drama of making a big change and all the intimidated aspects of it uh, too. So I really became a huge advocate for it. Um, and, you know, relatively kind of suddenly decided to become a coach myself. And so ever since then, I've been really um, focusing on um, helping other people, helping other surgeons, you know, kind of getting out of their own way. I started the boss series in 2015 um, when I was in uh, the DC area. So I was, um, the chair of our young surgeons committee. And it was difficult to get people to, you know, kind of buy into the, the meetings. And I said, well, we really, we really just have to have something to offer people other than just, you know, run of the mill meetings. And so I came up with this idea because, you know, quite honestly, it was somewhat selfish in the respect that I, I had them give topics that I wanted to hear about. <laughs> I was, uh, you know, planning on my exit from the military. I knew I was going to be getting a new job. So I uh, invited the people that I needed. I invited a lawyer to talk about contract negotiations. Uh, we talked about coding, how to write a CV, um, personal finance, which has always been a, a, a fascination for me. And 
in my last deployment, I just, I kind of lost track of it a little bit too. You know, life gets in the way, you know how that goes. Um, and so it kind of dropped for a little while, but it never really left me quite. Um, and the whole premise behind Boss is that there's a whole lot that we don't learn in residency. And we need these lessons to be successful surgeons. And so that's really where I wanted to go um, initially. And it's fascinating the the change because it first started very practically. You know, everything has to be um, practical and understood and, and you know, the e easy things. Um, and those were the, the topics that I mentioned before, very tangible, practical things. But really what I've discovered that's not taught in uh, residency that we really need to know is how to deal with a difficult partner, you know, how to deal with complications, you know, how do we, you know, manage clinic clinics intimidating in itself. It's so fascinating. We spend so much time and put a lot of focus on oral boards where clinic is oral boards every day, um, negotiating strategies. And quite honestly, everything is a negotiation. And so this is where boss picked up again uh, this year. Um, you know, I, I had my own imposter syndrome about the whole thing. Like, who am I to talk about this? You know, I'm just, I'm just a general surgeon. And it's so fascinating reading this book that we have for um, the, the book club of uh, how women rise is how we minimize ourselves. And so how appropriate that the minimization of like, I'm just whatever holds us back. So, you know, spend your time wisely, minimize distractions if you can. Share your thoughts in the chat box of the q and I do have to kind of exit out to get to that um, and get ready to change the way you think about yourself and your partner, because some of these things are, um, you know, pretty fascinating. What makes a partner difficult? I did pull a group, so I have some idea. I don't know if you guys have access to um, the, the chat box. And if you drop it down, you can do it to all folks. Feel free to make any comments or to, um, what makes partner difficult? Okay, so I did have an idea um, of what some of the things that people think of uh, make a partner difficult. Oh, still your cases, lack of communication. Those are some of the ones that came up in these groups that I was talking about. Um, other ones that came up, taking referrals, dumping bad cases, taking the good ones, treats you like you're the resident, not their partner. Paranoia, knowing is better than the rest of us. The rest of the partners wanting us all to get along. Um, I also heard uh, different work ethics, publicly stating conflicting advice, bad mouthing, general disrespect. Um, those are some of the things that I um, that I thought uh, that I heard in some of the groups that I was uh, not sharing referrals, dumping casing, it's ignoring calls. Okay, and then of course, like, what if this could be your life? Cooperating, wouldn't that be nice? And so it's interesting because have you all thought about what you want in a partner? You know, it's, it's certainly easy to come up with what you don't want. Um, and feel free to type in the chat box. Is there anything in particular that you want in a partner? And I have a reason for asking this. A lot of times we don't direct our mind where we want it to go. Um, our, we're kind of geared to look at the negative and to come up with complaints. And, you know, that can be really helpful because it's helpful to understand where the problems are, um, but we don't consciously think about what we want, so we don't direct it. And so I know that be there in tough cases without judgment, 
someone who treats you like an equal, someone who's invested in working as a team. Very, very good points. Collaborative. I think these are all excellent. Okay, so I wanted to start out the gate with my favorite, favorite, if I could get to it, <laughs> exercise. <clears throat> because our brain is geared to think of the negative, um, I want to help you take a negative complaint and come up to your greatest desire. Not just what you want, but your greatest desire. There's another tattoo. Knows your own limitations. Oh, isn't that true? Okay. And so how this exercise um, works is three columns. And so there's the first is the complaint. This is the first thing that comes to your mind. What am I complaining about? And again, this is like chief complaint. This is, you know, what's going on. And then you turn that into what you want. And then you turn what you want into your greatest desire. And so I want to really, you know, kind of look at this um, in a little bit greater depth. So we'll just kind of slow this down a bit. My partner openly disputes my patient management. I mean, that's a pretty fair complaint. So I say something, my partner disputes it. He comes up with something different. Um, but what do you want out of that? So instead of complaining, like, what do you want? I want my partner to agree with my management and support me. So I turned a complaint into something that I wanted. And we can actually go further than this to get from where what you want to your greatest desire you ask yourself why, why do I want my partner to agree with me? Why do I want them to agree with my management and support me? Why do these things matter? Like, what are we ultimately looking for? And for me, when I ask myself this, it's my greatest desire to be a capable, knowledgeable surgeon and my partner knows and respects me. So it's not so much the interaction, it's what I really want out of it. You know, I want to, for me to know that I'm doing the right thing. And if they're disagreeing with me, then there's some question about whether I'm doing the right thing. And I also want my partner to know and respect me. And it's so fascinating because that came up in the, um, the boss Facebook group about um, fulfillment at work. And if you didn't see the post, it's talking about fulfillment at work is made up of two aspects, mastery and recognition. And mastery is that we do something well. Um, that's intrinsic. We do something because it feels good, because we know we do it well. Um, it comes from how we feel about ourselves. Um, we can control this, right? We could work harder. You know, we could head down, we could study about it, we could read about it, we could practice. You know, as surgeons, we can become better surgeons by operating more, reading more, watching other people. So mastery is something that is within our reach and is something that we can do. The problem comes in with recognition. Recognition, that involves someone outside of us noticing that we're doing a good job and that we're worthy. That's extrinsic. This is something that we can't control as much. And here's the problem with the partner is that we can achieve as much mastery as possible, but if we feel like they're not um, on the same page and they don't think that we are, um, 
then that becomes a problem that eventually is going to lead to dissatisfaction at work because we can't control that part. So let's go a little bit deeper though, because, you know, understanding what our ultimate desire is, is really important, but let's get a little bit more about that. Why does their comment really bother us? Um, you know, we have to have this underlying desire to be worthy and be recognized. That's a big realization, but often these interactions are difficult for other reasons. So they say, I wouldn't do that. Our partner disputes our management. We start to feel fired up. I want you to stop right there for a minute. That feeling of being fired up. We've all been there, right? They say something. I pick the two most judgy looks. Don't you love those? <laughs> um, we start to feel fired up. That, that feeling of, you know, red in the face, a little tense, um, the, uh, you know, really either feeling the urge to like go at them or, or hide. Um, that is our primitive brain. So all of the signals go for first through our primitive brain. And uh, this is what we evolved from. This kept us from getting eaten in the forest, in the jungle, things like that, but is not as much use to us now. But certainly, you know, we do have some element of feeling that we're under threat. And so what happens when our primitive brain um, feels threatened? Well, we fight, we flight, or we play dead. And so fight may look like this. They say a comment. And, you know, here's the interesting aspect. When you start to really pay attention to what they say, a lot of times we don't even hear what they say. We hear what we think that they said. And so they may say, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. Or we, we hear, I wouldn't do that, but they may say like, I would do this, but our brain reads, I wouldn't do that. Well, why wouldn't they do that? They're saying something about me. Um, and so first get fired up. And so a uh, fight may look like this. They say a phrase and you say, oh, hell no. Who do they think they are? Let me quote all these papers to you. Let me pelt you with all of these facts. Let me plan your administrative demise. <laughs> all those things that happen to us in the moment when we feel under attack. Flight may look at this, like this, run away. We may be silent. We may not say something that we're thinking. We may think to ourselves, oh no, I know exactly what I should say. I know all the things um, that are relevant to this topic. But something shuts us down that we, we don't, we can't speak it out loud. And play dead is like when you're completely stunned. And I think that we've all had at least some element of this in the past where you kind of shrink, you wish you were smaller, you know, you, you wish that they didn't even know you noticed you were there. That's your fight, flight, or pay, play dead. And these are, this is your immediate visceral reaction. This is, you know, comes immediately after the thought. And again, it, it's not even necessarily what they say, it's what we think that they're saying. Um, so, how do you how do you fix that? We know it goes takes a little while to go from our primitive brain to our thinking brain, so we need a pause. And Viktor Frankl um, was a Holocaust survivor and became an Australian neurologist and psychologist, and really kind of highlighted the importance of the pause. The biologic basis is the primitive brain is not very smart, and we need a second to get to our cortex brain so we can think. And so creating a pause is the most important aspect. Between stimulus and response, there's a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth um, and our freedom. And this is extremely important because when we hear this, this uh, 
comment that they make, we feel under the gun, we feel that the light is on us, and we shut down, um, we need a little bit of pause to get out of that uh, visceral reaction. Here are uh, some ideas to create that pause. So any statement that is said, and you need a break, and you can make, and you really wanna make these as neutral as possible to diffuse the situation. And ideas for the pause can be, tell me more. Can you explain? I'm not sure I understand where you're coming from. Can you repeat that? Give me a minute. None of these things say anything that you're right or I'm wrong. It gives you a minute to pause. And I saved this last one. This, um, I have never forgotten this. I was a um, intern and the chief resident, he was just extremely smart. And I remember saying something, um, an answer to his question. And I remember him pausing and he said, I haven't heard that, teach me something. Um, and I thought that was really remarkable. It's probably why he was so smart because he created a pause and he allowed me to talk and we both learned something. I, I don't remember if I was right or wrong. Let's just assume I was. <laughs> anyway, all right. Um, but what the pause does is it gives your um, your visceral primitive response a second to um, to catch up. Here's an interesting aspect. If you've had an interaction with your partner, it is unlikely to be the first interaction that you've had. And so a lot of times you need to build a pause ahead of the pause, meaning that you're, not only does your brain not think that interaction is safe, you don't think this person is safe. This is not the first interaction. You know, maybe they've always made you uncomfortable. Um, you don't feel safe around them. You know, you already know that you're going to either say something off the cuff or run away and have like the best comeback in the entire world later. Um, or, you know, you, you know, you're going to shut down. And so every interaction that you have carries the shadow of the previous one. And so you need a pause ahead of the pause. And before I show you this next slide, just promise me to hear me out. It's going to sound crazy at first, but it really works. And I know um, some of you folks, I recognize uh, the names. You've heard me talk about this before, but you need to kind of create in your mind a visualization. If you've heard of the um, imagining your audience naked, um, this is something similar. <clears throat> and this worked for me once. There was someone who always made me a little bit uncomfortable. I really couldn't quite get past um, them whenever they would come down the hall. I'd already, um, and this was before I'd kind of read more about it. Um, I would feel just aggravated and I'd want to walk away and I'd want to run in the opposite direction, which just made me more mad, which then, you know, like leads to this feedback of, why can't I overcome this? This is so frustrating. And so I imagine him in full clown getup, the wig, the makeup, the nose, the shoes. And it is so funny, the magic that this does to your mind, <laughs> because your brain no longer perceives this person as a threat. You're rewriting um, who they are in your, in your mind. And so you put them in the most unthreatening aspect. And so I'm, I diffuse that threat into something very simple. And that worked because then I could be present in the moment and then I could build the pause. And over time, I had conditioned myself to later when I was able to see them, I didn't even need to do that anymore. Um, it was just recognizing that I had to kind of rewrite how my brain was perceiving this person. Now, this one is, is my favorite. There was a, a, a gastroenterologist who was yelling at me for something. It was completely ridiculous. And uh, 
there was really no winning in this uh, argument. And so I had like the best time because I pictured his head yelling at me on this little toddler body throwing a fit. It was like, I think the most fun interaction that was, that should have been uncomfortable <laughs> that I can describe. So um, these things are, are actually just really mind tricks uh, that are extremely helpful. Okay, so now after the pause, now you can think about the interaction from a safe place. Now you have created that pause to where you're thinking um, with your, uh, your frontal cortex. Now you can think about um, how you want this interaction to go. You can start becoming the leader. Uh, this is, and this is a theme, I think there were a lot of things, whether it's our schedule or our time, it is moving from being a reactor to a leader. Um, to creating your time and creating the situations that you want. And so now that you have the time to remind yourself um, what your, your, the goal of your interaction is. So now I have the space and the time and I'm in a safe place that I can start reminding myself, you know, the goal of this interaction is either, you know, to get to the, the right thing for the patient, or I want to advocate well for myself. You know, I want to be able to stand up for myself. And, um, and also, you know, a lot of times, these our partners are not the enemy. We we want to look good for them, but maybe we want a collaborative environment. And so I want to kind of work on: Am I kind of bringing something to this interaction that is causing this to go downhill? And so by allowing yourself to get out of the moment and becoming a leader in your interaction, then I can start to see how I am showing up. Um, I can actually contribute to dialing down the stakes of the conversation, and this is the most important thing. It avoids regret. The more you are able to have a meaningful, uh, useful, and productive conversation, you're not going to walk away thinking of all the comebacks that you could have. You're not going to walk away going, how am I going to get this? I really shouldn't have said that. Um, you're going to be able to get a lot more time back because you're not worrying um, and regretting something that you've said. So we mentioned after the pause, you're now in control of your automatic reaction. Now what? So now here's where you get into some of the deeper work. So now you're able now to understand what you want out of the conversation. You're now able to interact in a safe place. Now you wanna start really questioning, how am I showing up in this interaction? You know, what do I think about um, this partner having a different opinion from me? Here, here's some tricks coming up. You really want to think about what are you thinking when they say this statement, what are the thoughts to come to mind? Because your thoughts are causing you to feel some way. And when you feel some way, you act some way. And our actions are what are, give us our results. And it all traces back to the thoughts that we're having. And so if a partner comes in and says they have something different than what we're saying, some of the thoughts that come to mind, and when you're really honest with yourself, you start to realize we say awful things to ourselves. Um, and, and, you know, once you can kind of look at your thoughts as just these words that come out of your head and don't make them mean anything, then you can look at them with, with not beating yourself up about them or because some of these are not necessarily I mean, true, but we haven't really realized the thoughts behind what's causing our interactions. So these thoughts that are coming up um, in some of these interactions, they're disrespecting me. They think I'm not a good surgeon. They are such a jerk. There they go again. And do other people think I'm wrong too? And you could see if, if you consciously realize that this thought is coming in your head, can you imagine how you're feeling? 
you know, if you are in this interaction and the thought that is driving some of your um, emotions is they're disrespecting me, you can imagine how you're showing up to that conversation. If in, and it's not anything that they have necessarily said that's true. It's just, that's the thought that comes up from what they say. Typically what happens is we know what they're thinking about us. This, our thought pops up is I know what they're thinking about me. And it's usually not good thinking of something and it's not good. All right. So this is mind reading. And this is a classic self-sabotage. There is a great book um, by Judy Ho called um, Stop Self-Sabotage. And so she talks about um, several different um, ways that we sabotage ourselves. One is mind reading. And, you know, how this works is the, if we look through the thought model here is how we take a circumstance um, and a circumstance can be anything that everyone would agree on something that is done, something that is said, um, you know, and when we're interacting with someone, our partner saying, I wouldn't do it that way. Um, that, that would be a circumstance for us because everyone agreed that that was what's said out loud. Uh, it doesn't have to be true. That's just true that someone said it. So we take the circumstance and we have a lot of thoughts about it. You know, what we think about that. And, you know, we pointed out all those thoughts before of, they're disrespecting me. Everyone's going to know. And a lot of times it kind of points, the thought is um, pointing back to uh, our worthiness. And those are usually the thoughts that bother us the most is that internal doubt, you know, they're saying this about me. And of course the underlying thought is what if they're right? Um, the emotion that we feel, and this is something that we kind of shut down a little bit um, or just weren't taught as much um, in, as surgeons is how, how do we feel about these things? You know, I know that when I first started the, uh, you know, learning about coaching, when someone asked me how I felt, I could trace it down to a happy, sad, angry. <laughs> That's about the uh, uh, amount of emotional depth that I had. And now um, they actually have these really great things like emotional wheels to where you can go in greater depth of saying that, you know, I feel resentful. I feel frustrated. I feel, um, uh, I don't know. Um, loyalty. I, all these diff, de, different depths of emotions um, are so helpful to really understand because all these emotions come from a thought. And the more we understand how we feel, the more we can trace it down to what we thought because, and I see this a lot in coaching where someone says, well, I feel angry. What's your thought about that? Well, you know, they were wrong. And I was like, yeah, I mean, that may be true, but you know, what is really making you angry? A lot of times it's, it's thinking that, you know, they're also, they're also might be right. You know, that can cause a little bit of anger too. Um, and that causes frustration or we think it's anger and it's really frustration. And so really kind of, it's a very simple formula and the formulaic aspect of it really appeals to me. Um, but if we look really at the details of each of these and really do the detail work, um, then we can get to how our thoughts lead to our emotions. And then we know that any way we act is to feel a certain way and, and challenge yourself on this. Any action that we do is to feel a certain way. And as surgeons, you know, we seek towards mastery. Um, and, you know, that's certainly something that's important to us for empowerment um, uh, would be the motion I think that would lead to that action. And the result is we work hard and we become good surgeons. Here is um, again, you know, the result of mind reading. So let's go into that situation that I was talking about. Circumstance, partner says, I would not, um, I would not do this or I'd do this, not that. And so our thought partner thinks there's something wrong with me. Then we're defensive. 
And so the actions that we can come out of that, we can attack them, we can over defend and we can hide. And the interesting aspect is the result of these actions that come from this feeling of defensiveness is we look wrong. You know, if we were right, if we felt like we were right, we wouldn't have this hyped up defense. We wouldn't have to feel like we had to attack them. We wouldn't have to over defend ourselves. We wouldn't have to hide um, because the result is that we look wrong in these situations. And it all traces back this result of this interaction that goes bad can trace back all this um, can trace back to the thought that this, the partner thinks that there's something wrong with me. Um, and if we didn't think there's something wrong with us, that wouldn't bother us so much, would it? And it all kind of goes back to, and the more I do these models, the more I think this is true. The more we think something is happening, the more we actually prove that it's right. Um, and that is something that you would just have to see in practice. It's, it's a fascinating topic. Okay, so now it's very easy to say this, don't mind read, but um, the most important thing is to really pay attention to what they're saying. Um, and it's interesting because someone will say, well, they said this to me in email. Okay, well, let's look at the email and see what the words actually say. And it's funny when you look at it without the thoughts that we layer on top of it and realize that a lot of these things are actually fairly neutral. We just add a lot of things to make it not feel very neutral. Um, and so that's one aspect is, is to get down to the, the details and the facts of it. So we're not um, overthinking or coming up with um, more layers than, than are added onto that. Um, also is understanding like, what do um, what are we worried about? And I think a lot of times we think everyone's gonna know. We're thinking that whatever we do is gonna be highlighted. Um, and there's this perception of the light being honest, like the, the, um, the spotlight being honest. And I try to talk to people about this in conversations. Um, a lot of times when we're in a conversation and it's someone we're friendly with, then they're not so much of like, it doesn't feel like there's a spotlight at anyone. We're, we're there together and collaborative. But sometimes when you're in a, a conversation with someone, especially as the stakes get a little bit higher, um, it starts to feel like the spotlight is on you. And that usually raises our, um, our heightened response. And so finding ways to negotiate to ways to where you can take that light that's on you and to shine it on them where they start negotiating with themselves, that is an excellent tactic of how to get yourself out of feeling like you're in hot water. And first, most mostly recognizing that everyone's caught up in their own thing. Everyone's dealing with their own thought processes that they honestly are not always thinking about us. Everyone's a little, always a little bit worried about how they're showing up or they have their own things on their mind. Um, they're not necessarily thinking that, you know, watching us to see if we're doing something wrong. Uh, but the more that we think we know someone is doing something, it changes how we show up. Um, and we have to then have the ability to control the thoughts that we have about these different situations. Um, and I'll give you an example. Um, and I try this in real life and it's really fascinating. So I'm sitting in the surgeon lounge and someone that I don't talk to as much walks by and he doesn't say anything. And, um, and I really kind of stopped and focused just like, and thought about my thoughts that are coming up with that. And I was like, well, why doesn't he look at me? They must not like me very much, you know? And then of course it's like, do they think I'm not a good surgeon? Do they not want to talk to me? You know, it's, it's so, it was fascinating, absolutely fascinating to see the thoughts that are coming in my mind of a simple event of someone walking 
through the lounge um, that I just didn't talk to that much. And so I did a lot of mind reading in that um, situation. And so um, in that thought model, circumstances, someone walks by, my thought is, I mean, why don't they like me? And then that motion is like a little bit embarrassed. I mean, the action is kind of starting questioning, what did I do? And, you know, what's wrong with me? And then the result is that I shut down. I don't talk to anybody. And so you can see like the result of that is, is I don't talk to anybody. And so I thought, well, what if my thought is wrong? What if maybe they don't notice me, you know, or maybe, I mean, maybe he's not talking to me because I don't know him very well. Maybe I can get to know him. And so when he walked past um, uh, another time, I said, how's your day going? I just actually uh, just introduced or whatever, really introduced myself, but I, I just said like a pretty benign statement. And interestingly enough, he's like, oh, fine, fine. You know, just, you know, the usual day and all. And then the next time I said it again, you know, how's your day going? And over time, over actually, it was a few weeks, um, you know, it's kind of a passive exercise or I just did that every now and then just out of fascination. But the most interesting aspect is that over time, he actually talks to me now. Um, and so once I got over the idea that I was mind reading what someone is doing, um, the more I was actually able to kind of control the situation and, and realize it was never really about me or anything. He probably actually really was busy. Um, and so that was a, a fascinating aspect for me to think about mind reading. Now, occasionally you're going to mind read and you're going to be right. Maybe they don't like you or things like that. But the most important other aspect to consider is so what? So what if someone doesn't like you, you know, so what if, you know, they, they don't think that you're a good surgeon or whatever, as long as you are a good surgeon, who cares as long as they don't influence what you, what your life is like. And the more we can embody the confidence of knowing that we are a good surgeon, that we do the right thing, and we're able to get out of our own way and advocate for ourselves, the less someone else's opinion matters. And a really fascinating um, topic that was completely off the topic of surgery, but it was on the lines of criticizing. Um, and the, this very famous person who does uh, marketing uh, pointed out that when you look at the Facebook feeds and the people that are critical of me on these Facebook feeds, none of these people are more successful than me. Um, and she said that is how she handled the negative feedback of realizing that the people who are more successful than her are not looking at her. Um, it's the people that are less successful that are ones that are criticizing her. And so I think really understanding that we can control people's opinion. Um, and a, a lot of times their opinion may be coming from their own um, resentment or jealousy or bitterness. Um, and so, but either way, we can't do anything about it. So you might as well not let it bother you. But that was one scenario. I kind of spent a little bit of time on, on that just to, to explore a little bit of the concepts here. Now, this is another one that came up um, a lot, and I had some experience with this, um, this particular um, topic when I first moved um, into town, and this, this idea that your partner um, is taking your referrals. Um, and I'm going to pause here for a minute because this picture, that's my office. I have a beautiful office. That was worth it. Uh, when I went to private practice, I was able to buy my own office and decorate it, and, and so uh, I have a nice place to live. Anyway, so is your partner taking your referrals? So when I first came in, um, I, uh, I was interested in breast cancer um, because I did that a lot at Walter Reed um, where I came from. We had a big breast center um, and being a female, you know, certainly um, had a lot of requests for that aspect. And so I was a little frustrated 
that after a few months that I really wasn't getting any referrals. And, you know, I had been marketing a little bit and I wasn't getting them. And so I immediately thought like someone's taking them, someone is doing something. And, you know, I started to get angry. I started to get mad at the administration. Like they should be marketing for me. They should be doing all this. Um, You know, they should be advocating for me. Um, Though, so that kind of led to kind of a spin out of, of unproductivity um, where I was worried about that aspect. And so I learned um, some lessons in that particular situation is to ask the right questions. And so if someone is taking your referrals um, or anything, honestly, the very first thing is to ask the questions like, is that really what's happening? You know, I couldn't prove it necessarily. I'd heard some things that actually some things might've been true, but it didn't explain um, the difference in the referral base. Um, And so I had to start asking myself the questions of like, where are the referrals coming from? And so I spent a lot of time figuring out where they came from. And then, you know, I asked myself, am I really not in control of people coming into clinic? I mean, how do people come into clinic in the first place? Um, and then this idea of like, there was a, um, a, a person that had been there for a while, like, should they be giving the cases to me? You know, they've been in the, we'll talk about that in a minute. So first, and I discovered an interesting thing. Uh, so I'm a general surgeon and breast cancer cases, you know, can be done by the general surgeon. A lot of people do that. There is a fellowship in some places, you know, require that. And some people just do only breast surgery. And so the most interesting aspect is when I explored this, um, is when a primary care provider went to refer for a breast complaint, the, um, there was a general surgery listing, but there was a breast surgery listing because there's one person who only did breast. And so the referring providers actually thought that, um, there was only, you know, one way to do that. They did not realize, you know, I, there was the assumption that they would know that I did that. Um, and so, one actual flaw of this <clears throat> was just a freak system thing of, you know, asking, just asking the, the referring providers, how do you refer to us? How does that process work? And see if there's just an administrative mistake that's going on. Um, and so I spent a lot of time feeling resentful when really what it was, I just needed to know the nuts and bolts of that. And um, then the next thing is, you know, how do you get people in clinic? And I think this is probably the biggest lesson that people learn coming out of residency or fellowship is people come into clinic in the academic setting because you're an academic place and there's an, a well-established pattern. So when you're a resident, people just show up in a clinic and it's always busy. And so you don't really actually have the experience of building your clinic. Um, you know, you don't really have the experience of you know, marketing or um, learning your to get to know your referring providers and things like that. And so one of the very first things that we don't learn in residency is how to get people in a clinic. And that's why you have a guaranteed salary. Initially, when you go to a place, they expect you not to have a full clinic. They expect you to need to build up that practice. And once I got out of my resentment of not getting people in the clinic, I started paying attention to the patients I did have. I started making more patient education. I started you know, building how I wanted to do the clinic. I started reaching out to the referring providers and say, how can I help you? What are, you, you know, what are your problems? How can I fix them? And 
you know, and I gave them my cell number, you call me if there's a problem, you know, I demonstrated to them knowledge by saying that, um, yeah, well, I did this, this is where I came from. And these are some of the things I did. And, um, and that really built a lot of rapport. Um, and that helped referring. So, you know, if you want people to personally refer to you, be personable. And so that's what I was, I was, uh, I was, and it took time, but then my referral base built. Um, and then I have no problem getting folks in. And here is a tricky one. When you join a practice with someone who's been in practice for a long time, the question is, should they be giving you referrals? You know, should is always a red flag. If you say someone should be doing something, I should be doing something. You know, should is this, um, this, this idea that other people should do what we want. And people rarely do what we want unless they want to do it. So, I mean, because everyone's motivated by their own, um, you know, their own ideas of what should happen. So if you are come to a place where they have a well-established practice, um, you can build resentment towards that person by assuming that they should give you your referrals. Um, these are th some things that we have to earn a little bit over time. And you can work on that relationship um, when when you get out of the thought that they should give me the referrals and move more into the thought of, I get to earn these referrals or I can learn from this and I can be the good partner. Because a lot of times what's very interesting is when we think our senior partner is difficult because they're not giving us referrals, we tend to show up with resentment or feel um, a little bit like we should have this. And we actually become the difficult partner. We're a little bit harder to be around. And so recognizing that this should um, causes us to show up in um, interesting ways it was you know, kind of a, a wake up call for me as well. Now here is uh, an interesting aspect. And I know we're you know, starting to run a little bit short on time because I wanna have time for questions and such. Um, now, let's say you do due diligence and you've explored all of this and you've tried really hard to get a personalized um, referral base. And lo and behold, you discovered, yes, they are indeed taking referrals, meaning that they're acting in ways that are not, that are a little shady. So now you have a bit of a problem. And so here is where coaching helps a lot because you really have to get your mind straight to be able to talk to someone. And that's the only way that this is gonna get fixed. You're gonna to have to talk to them. You're gonna to have to have the conversation and not an email. This is a time to meet face-to-face. -face. You want to get the information you need and you need to avoid the tone deaf nature of the email. And I say get coaching because this takes a lot of mind work to be able to approach a difficult conversation um, with confidence, and a lot of the negotiating skills, some of the simple things that I mentioned is, you know, kind of visualizing that you're taking that spotlight and you're turning that spotlight onto them. You want to get the information out of them. The most effective way to come up to a solution is to find one together um, and better yet have that, um, you know, a compromise that comes from them. You know, having the ability to negotiate your way into an agreement is a skill. Um, there's certainly some tricks to that, but the very most important aspect is your ability to do all those things that we talked about at the beginning, which is not let your primitive brain take over. 
clean up your thoughts to where you're going, coming from a safe and stable place. And then there's the higher level negotiating strategies, which is the ability to get the information out of them. Because sometimes what's most surprising to me when I've um, had conversations with other people is their idea of what's going on is different than my idea of what's going on. And once we kind of share the details and, you know, once we understand where everyone's motivation is, that's where you get somewhere. And so your partner doing some of these referrals, uh, if they truly are taking them, don't assume in this idea of black and white thinking that all is lost in your relationship. Um, you can negotiate your way to an understanding to where you can actually build um, their respect towards you by how you handle this. You can then start to establish yourself as a partner who leads um, interactions, who approaches them with respect, who gets them to the conclusion that's fair because they're not purposely shady unless they're like a true like uh, sociopath and those I can't help you with. <laughs> but most people are normal. Most people have their own thoughts and their own flaws and you can work with that. And sometimes it's these interactions that are going to build a relationship that's both gonna empower you and them and have you come up to an agreement that's gonna be most effective for both of you. Um, and so this is not something that I think that you should shy away from. I think this is one of those, you know, um, opportunities for really strong personal growth um, that could be good for your relationship, your working relationship. But this, this takes a little bit of time. Okay, I'm going to open this up for um, questions. Now, I do have a coaching program, and I am going to talk about that. And I do know a lot of people don't really like to be, I guess, pitched to. And so I've told myself that I was going to make sure to give you all warning <laughs> that I was going to talk about them. But we do have the chat box. We do have the Q&As. Um, you know, I'm most interested, is there any of this that resonated with you? Is there anything that you're going to take away from this? And I think that's really important when you're looking at some of these, you know, either coaching sessions or some of these things is really reflecting back and saying, what am I going to take away from this? And so if you have the ability to go in the chat, I'm very curious to say, is there anything in here that resonated with you that you want to take um, to you to work tomorrow? I'm really excited to see all the folks on here. I really hope that this was, um, you know, some of these things were helpful for you. If you are not a part of um, the Boss Facebook group, make sure to join. Um, we're talking about the how women rise. Now, it, um, this does not mean that guys are not welcome. Um, I think most of the people that um, are in the boss, I think there might be one male. Uh, for the most part, um, people will come to, to boss organically. Uh, really look at those lessons. I'm on habit nine out of 12 right now. So, so, so critical. I think that that book is in itself uh, a coaching experience. And what I've done is take those lessons, try to see them through the surgeon's eyes and reflect them back in the post. And so I hope you guys have enjoyed those. Okay, so what is coaching? Coaching is mind work. It's been around as long as people have had brains. Now there's different kinds of coaching. So there's, um, if you recall the thought model, um, and I know I went through it very, very briefly, there's um, a lot of things that we get in life so far are A-line coaching or action coaching, people telling us what to do. 
I think you should do this. I should think, I think you should do this. You know, all of these things, someone else telling us what we should do. And the kind of coaching that I do um, and how I was trained to the life coach school is, you know, with a thought model. And it's the idea that you have the right answers and it's buried under there. It's buried under your expectations from society. It's buried under there for your, all those shoulds. I should be doing this. I should be doing better. You know, all of these things um, that are piling on and to kind of come up with those thoughts that are leading us to the emotions, that are leading us to the actions, that are giving us our results. And it's those thoughts um, that are, are what will set us free, uh, is really understanding what we're thinking is how we get out of and how we really um, improve our results. We really do hold ourselves back. And this is really important to understand, and I still learn this over and over again, is you don't have to change anyone else to change your life. And you can't anyway, you cannot change who you are. Um, you know, my partner self, uh, my, my partner that I work with too, we are wildly different. And it's taken me a, a long time to, you know, really adapt to what he thinks. And, you know, we now are able to um, interact, even though we're wildly different. And when you think about what a partner is, I mean, we just met this person briefly, like before we get this job, a lot of times we meet them briefly and, you know, we have to then act, you know, kind of this marriage, they're basically become our work spouses and we've met them like basically online dating. <laughs> All right. And I've got, oh good, an anonymous attendee. The hardest thing for me is deciding if I can work this out and deciding if it's time to pull the plug on the relationship. I think this is really great question. And, you know, I, um, I always tell this to people too, because a lot of times it's, it's difficult to, um, I'm not sure how to get out of it. Uh, it's difficult to understand when to call it quits. Uh, and if you're dealing with a sociopath, then you can't stay. If you're dealing with a, a situation that you've tried and you can't change, then it's difficult to stay. Um, but if you are, um, willing to do the work on yourself and to work through this difficult situation. Um, you don't have to stay, but you're going to learn. Don't move before you learn the lesson. Don't move before you understand why they set you off. Don't move before you haven't tried a few techniques of working through conversations and dialing down the expectations and, and taking a high stakes conversation and making it not high, high stakes. Um, those are the things that I would caution you to do before you decide to go. Um, and looking back at that exercise that we had at the beginning of taking your complaint, turning it into what you want, and then turning it to your greatest desire. And once you start realizing what your greatest desire is, then you're going to start working towards those ways of making it better. Um, so don't miss the opportunity um, to learn the lesson. I hope that I hope that that answers your your question. It's going to be individual for everyone because like someone will come into my job and absolutely hate it. You know, I'm an extremely busy, a lot of complex stuff. You know, we have the the smoking obese population that's you know prevalent in the South, um, and you know being the only woman um, or female general surgeon here has been a little bit challenging. It is what it is. I'm up for the challenge. It doesn't bother me that much, uh, but someone else can come down here and be absolutely miserable.
And I can go to somewhere where it's all clinic and a light schedule and it'll probably drive me bananas. So um, the most important thing is, is to really realize what you truly want and then ask yourself, does this job have that? Um, and I think that's the most important aspect. Um, I, I recently had a partnership that, you know, um, I, I asked why I wanted to join um, a, a partnership in the first place. And when I realized what the, the reasons that I did, and then like, does my reasons match what I have? Like, do my desires for what I want match what I have? And if it doesn't match, and you can't see a way under perfect circumstances to make those match, that tells you it's time to go. But at least you've done the work and now you know what you want. And I worked with someone a while ago who um, was questioning whether she should leave her job. And she's like, there, there are no other jobs out there. There's no jobs that, uh, that I want. And so we went through the exercise. Well, tell me what you do want. I want like, and be very specific. Like, I don't wanna be on call anymore. Well, you're going to have to be in call so much. What, how much do you want to be in call? Like this many times a month, I can live with, it. you know, I want this amount of clinic. I want, and the more specific you are, you'll be really surprised at, at directing your thoughts for stuff about how it makes things happen. It's just really crazy how that works. Um, you know, if you start deciding what you want, it's like the universe conspires to help you. Um, you know, I'd, I'd heard that phrase before and I didn't necessarily believe it, but then I started realizing when I started being intentional about stuff, things just started happening, you know, where, it, and they had no reason to happen, but they just started happening because I st started putting myself out there. Um, it's just really fascinating. So I hope that that it's a really long-winded way to answer your question, um, but don't move before you learn the lesson. Now, like I said, you don't have to change anyone to do this. Um, and in fact, you can't, um, we can change how we approached. And so I hope in some of these examples, I showed you that you can change how you approach a situation, then all of a sudden it changes and you can do this right now. These are, these are just things that evolve over time. You're not going to know everything all the, all the time. It takes some practice. And even now I still get a little bit surprised at some of the hidden thoughts that come out that drive uh, my, my thoughts. I still get regular coaching. And even then, you know, I sign up regularly and some days I'm like, I don't have anything to coach about. And I sit down and I start talking. And I'm like, Oh, where'd that come from? And so it's just really having a deep awareness for what we think and especially how we feel. And like I said, if your only emotions are happy, mad, and sad, then you need to start looking at increasing your depth of knowledge of emotions. All right. Um, so I promised you, uh, you know, if, I would warn you about the pitches, like I said. So um, how the boss series is going to work, it is a series. And my plan is having this uh, quarterly um, online course self-paced. And so there'll be things that are you know, pre-recorded or recorded live, but available for replay. Um, things like worksheets. This is not school. You know, worksheets are really just a, you know, a framework to offer um, uh, how to uh, work through some of the things, kind of like that exercise I told you up front. Not a lot of busy work. It has to be purposeful. And group coaching. Group coaching is extremely helpful um, because even if you're not coached, you can get something out of it. You know, and you start to realize that everyone has a lot of the similar problems, or you didn't realize that's what you're thinking until you watch their thought process in action. So this can be very valuable. And so uh, my plan was going to have those Wednesday nights and Sunday nights and alternating those um, and having replays um, available and then also having guest coaches um, and guests. Now, quarterly, I already have the, the year mapped out for next year, which is 
the difficult partner. These are going to be quarterly, which is going to be three months. So the difficult partner with the online course that's self-paced that can kind of, as you go along, some different um, things that I think that are helpful. Um, and the group coaching that doesn't is not limited to partners. It's just um, whatever is, is in your life or work. Um, the next quarter, um, so March uh, or January, February, March is going to be the difficult partner. April, May, June is going to be, it's complicated, talking all things complicated. When it comes to guest coaches there, um, I have a, um, a coach who uh, works especially with people um, who are dealing with malpractice or the fear of malpractice um, and other aspects of guest coaches, things that we're going to find useful. The next quarter is going to be everything is a negotiation. And like literally everything is a negotiation. If you have kids negotiating, spouse, you have to negotiate any daily conversation. Um, but it's especially, you know, as a surgeon, we negotiate with our patients, we negotiate with our partners, we negotiate with administration, there's certainly some skills that are helpful. And the final quarter is going to be stop hating clinic. And, you know, clinic is something that is necessary for us. Yeah. And it would be awfully nice to not hate clinic, you actually may enjoy clinic. Um, and having the ability to go into clinic, see the patient, get the notes done, and leave at a decent hour is, is a skill that you can learn. It's a skill that I've learned. Um, and I didn't think that I could, but I, uh, once I realized that I could and I made it happen, it really does help. Okay, and so those are the, the uh, how that works. Now, one-on-one -on -one coaching is, is hard to do a ton of because that involves more time, but it is the most helpful if you have a, a difficult problem to work one-on-one. -on -one. And so, bosssurgery.com has a link to that. I'm also going to send that as an email. Um, and so as a founding member, that's just to the, um, uh, the end of December. So through this year, if you sign up beforehand, it'll be six months of that for that amount. Now, I know that you may have some questions and I'm happy to answer some questions. I know this is a little bit outside the box if you're not used to um, the idea of coaching. Now, it is okay if, if you don't want to sign up for that. I do want you to participate in the, the Boss Facebook group. I will occasionally have some group coaching sessions that are offered just as gifts because I do you know, want this accessible to other folks as well. Now, does anyone have any questions? I think we end up right on time. Uh, okay, so do you have any advice for someone looking for their first job out of training in terms of finding supportive partners and or good questions to ask during interviews? Absolutely. Um, I think that if you were to ask people who had jobs that they're, they're not satisfied with, um, they'll tell you that they saw some red flags. And so what you want to do, um, and this is, I think the re I think this is why people have difficult times in interviewing, finding jobs that they're not used to, um, or that they end up not happy at is because when you're interviewing, you're so worried about what they think of you that you're not thinking about what you think of them. And if you're not thinking of what you think of them, you're not noticing the red flags yet. You know, the people that are, um, when I interview my job here, um, one group I felt, you know, comfortable with, and the other one I didn't. And uh, there was just something about it. It was hard to name. And I had an interview at another job and I absolutely adored them, but I didn't like the job. Um, and so, it was really fascinating because I was able to kind of keep myself in the moment and I saw the red flags that were there and, you know, learning later about some of the groups that I'd interviewed with, I was, I was right. I did see the red flags. So the most important thing is the more you can get out of your head, 
And instead of looking inward, you could look outward. Um, you could start seeing them for yourself. But I think the biggest mistake people see is not noticing the red flags or dismissing them, thinking, oh, that it's not going to be a problem that they seem kind of rude. Um, it's not going to be a problem that they were late and didn't really seem to, to be careful. I mean, maybe it's, maybe it's me, you know, and that's what I think where we go wrong is we tell ourselves it's us and not them. And so that's how we miss the red flag. I hope that answered your question. All right. Well, thank you all for coming. Um, I'm really just so pleased at the, the amount of participants. And if you have questions, you know, feel free to uh, post them in the Facebook group or um, reach out to me. All right. Y'all have a good night.